Well, life uh, certainly isn't predictable, is it? If you've been around on this planet very long, you know that's the case. We don't always know what's around the next corner. I think we all have ups and downs and good days and bad days and everything in between. That's simply a part of this life. And I, I think it's natural for us to point to the good times when everything goes our way and when our plans seem to be working out and maybe we're experiencing a lot of success and we see those great moments as confirmation of that which we've been working toward, maybe confirmation of, of the direction that we've been going in or confirmation of decisions that we've made and, and that's good. Uh, we should celebrate those moments in our lives when we've been working toward something. We've made good decisions, good choices according to God's will for our lives. And as a result, we experience a lot of success, uh, great relationships, great moments that we cherish because we see God's faithfulness in our lives and experience the reward that comes along with uh, the, the faithfulness in doing His will. I've often said everybody needs a win from time to time. I believe that and you understand that if you've ever worked really hard at something and yet you don't see much success from it and you keep working at it and, and it never seems to work out for you. I think most people can generally only take so much of that before they give up. Everybody needs a win from time to time. We all need to be encouraged. We all need to experience success in life at some level because it validates what we're doing. And I think that we all need some level of validation in our lives. Well, God knows all that. Okay. Because he made us that way. He knows that we need to be encouraged. He built us to long for affirmation and acceptance and validation. And of course, that ultimately only comes through him. But he knows what we need. And so he created all kinds of spiritual principles that we can apply to our lives that can produce a favorable outcome, a win, as we live faithfully to his word. And of course, that doesn't mean that every single moment of our lives is guaranteed to be bright and cheery. That's a prosperity gospel, uh, and it's an errant gospel, even if we live to the letter of his word. We've been on a journey with the Apostle Paul for nearly a year now, uh, watching him live faithfully according to God's will, and he still experienced good days and plenty of bad days, right? We know that God's calling for Paul, of course, was particularly difficult. It was a unique one at a specific time in history when the New Testament church was being established. And so we're not all necessarily called to do what Paul did and experience what Paul experienced. But the point is, God has established some spiritual principles. And if we follow them, we can expect a good outcome, a win for our lives, validation when we live according to his word. And even though that doesn't mean that there will never be hard times, it does mean that we can experience success in our lives as we obey his commands in his word. In Galatians uh, chapter 6, verses 6 through 10 says, Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Okay, so Paul teaches us that we're supposed to take care of each other. Especially in the church, he says. And, and as we sow good things, we also reap good things. 
I cannot begin to recount for you today. I couldn't recount for you today how many people I've talked to over the past 20 plus years in ministry who've expressed the blessings in their lives, both material and otherwise, that they've experienced once they began giving back into the body of Christ, serving in the church, tithing from their income, actively loving other people, both inside and outside the church. Why? Because we reap what we sow. In Luke 18, 29 and 30, Peter's talking to Jesus about the sacrifice that he and the other disciples made for Christ. And Jesus replied, truly, I say to you, there is no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Okay, we reap what we sow. We're blessed many times more than what we give as we live for Christ, not only in eternal life in the age to come, but in this time as well. And Mark's account of the gospel, I love uh, as he expands in this statement. He quotes Jesus as saying, Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Mark 10, 29 and 30. So Jesus makes it clear. Even as we live for him, there will be hard times, persecutions. But he says there's also a reciprocal blessing, a hundredfold or many times more for every sacrifice that we make as we choose to follow Jesus Christ. We reap what we sow. And all of that... I think generally makes sense to us. In fact, it makes sense to most people, even unbelievers, the idea that you get back what you give, right? If you give good things in this life, you're going to get good things back. There are a lot of people, uh, whether they're Christian or not, who believe that principle. What isn't, however, I think quite so obvious or understood is the rule of reaping and sowing when we're living for Christ and our lives seem to be coming apart at the seams. When, when things are not going well, when there's trouble all around us and the future is not looking very bright and we, we don't see good things coming back to us. It can be very difficult in those moments or seasons of our lives to see God working on our behalf. And I would contend that this is where Christians often become disillusioned with their walk, uh, in their walk with Christ, when the reaping and sowing principle doesn't seem to be working for them. And we, we begin to question whether or not God is really even there. So I think it's really important that we're able to recognize the sovereign hand of God at work in our lives, not just in the good times, but in the really hard times too. Not just when the future's bright, but when the storms of life are raging all around us and the future maybe seems quite uncertain. So as we continue our sermon series today, the Acts of the Apostles with a message entitled Shining While the Shipwrecks, we're going to talk about how Paul in the midst of what had to be some of the most uncertain and ominous circumstances of his entire life, manages to recognize God at work. And and even though, uh, as he always seemed to be able to look beyond his own predicament in the moment, he still did what had to be done in the moment, in the midst of the worst storms of life, to not only affect his situation personally, but to minister to everyone around him as well. But Paul sowed good things, godly things into people's lives, even when his circumstances were uh, turbulent at best and, and potentially deadly at worst. And as a result, he reaped blessings 
in his life, even supernatural blessings, which we're going to talk about next week, during some of the most difficult and uncertain times. Okay, and I think we need to get this. We need to get this in our own lives because God wants to shine through us, and he will, even in the worst circumstances of our lives as we train ourselves to stay focused on him and on his will, even when life seems to be breaking apart in the storm and say, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 27 then and read this together. This is another movie script like uh, chapter in Paul's life. It's one of those popcorn Sundays. We should have popcorn. It's like watching a movie. It's an amazing account of adventure, disaster, unbelievable courage and survival that would have turned out very differently had Paul not been focused on God's providence working in his life even in the worst of times, okay? And as we prepare to read it, you'll remember from last week, uh, Paul has recently argued his case before Festus, the newly appointed Roman governor of Caesarea and the local uh, Jewish king Agrippa as well, neither of whom can find a reason to convict or even uh, charge Paul with a crime. Uh, But Paul had already appealed his case to the emperor of Rome. And so chapters 27 and 28 are the account of Paul's journey by sea to his final destination. And so we're going to cover the first part of that here today in chapter 27. So let's read together. Chapter 27, starting at verse 1. And when it was decided that we should uh, set sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. Okay, we're going to pull up our trusty map here, kind of revisit where Paul's been traveling. He's down here in Caesarea. They leave on a ship, uh, head up past Sidon, and they go up over the island of Cyprus, okay, and along the coast here, Pamphylia, and there's Lycia and Myra. So that's where they end up right now, and that's the southern tip uh, almost of modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor here, okay? So they're in Myra right now. Up to this point, Paul and his companions uh, were probably on a coasting vessel. That's a smaller ship. It wasn't intended to venture out far from shore. Um, and as they're ready, already encountering strong winds that were contrary to their direction of travel, they sailed under the lee of Cyprus, it says, which means they sailed under the protection of uh, the, the land, the, the protection that the island of Cyprus offered them from the wind. So they stayed fairly close to land uh, as far as they could, and they make it to Myra, where they hitch a ride on a larger ship. So they're kind of hugging the coastline here till they get to Myra and get on a larger boat, okay? Let's keep reading, verse 6. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. And this is a much larger boat now. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassay. Okay, so looking at the map again, um, they're at Myra. They hug the coast again because they're having trouble with the wind. They go up over uh, the island of Rhodes, past Nidus, right here, and then due south, 
past Salmon, and then they end up at Fair Havens near the city of Lisay. So that's where they are right now on the southern uh, tip of Crete, okay? And they're really starting to struggle against the weather now. Uh, as we'll see, their situation rapidly goes from bad to worse. So let's keep reading. Verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship more than what Paul had said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Okay, so Luke, the, the writer of our story here, points out that the weather's really starting to become dangerous. Uh, he mentions in verse 9 that the fast was already over. That's a reference to the Day of Atonement in the fall uh, when the Mediterranean uh, voyages that people would take typically, typically became too dangerous for sailing vessels that time of year. And that was the point at which they would know after the fast was over that it wasn't safe. And Paul understands that. He knows that it's late in the sailing season to be continuing in this journey. And so he tries to tell the Romans in charge that, hey guys, this is a bad idea for us to keep going. But they disregard his advice, listen to the ship's captain and the owner instead, who want to press on despite the dangerous weather toward Phoenix. Why? Because there's money to be made. They're carrying a shipment of wheat. It was probably Egyptian wheat, which was very valuable, and other cargo. And, and as you know, time is money, right? So they're, they're willing to take the risk. It's a calculated risk for the profits that await them at the end of their scheduled trip. And if we look at the map, uh, you can see at this point they're trying to make it from Fairhavens over to Phoenix. I mean, it's just from here to here. It's not very far uh, left to go. Uh, they want to get to that western end from Fairhavens because it's a, a more suitable harbor to winter over in that would offer them, and really more to the point, their cargo, that they don't want to lose better protection. And of course, we know after reading this chapter, they should have listened to Paul, but they didn't. And this is where everything really begins to unravel for our travelers. Let's keep reading verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cotta, it's called Clotta today, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. And then fearing that they would run aground on the surtis, like a big sandbar, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So Luke paints a pretty bleak picture here. Uh, they're literally now throwing their cargo and tackle overboard as the ship is being driven by the winds wildly across angry seas, okay? Look at the map again. Uh, they were trying to get from Fairhavens to Phoenix, but they end up going past Clotta here because the wind is just taking control and it's driving them all the way. They're going to end up over here in Malta. You know, Rome is up here. They're, that's not at all the way they wanted to go, and it's driving them down here toward Malta. They've lost control of where they're going. 
they're losing all of their belongings now to the sea and they're beginning to lose hope. And I just wonder how many of us have been there, right? A situation, a storm arises in your life which may not in any way be your own doing and it gets worse and worse until it's out of control. And that's usually the first thing to go in the worst storms of our lives. We lose the ability to control or even predict the outcome. I can't tell you how many people in counseling over the years have come in and say, I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know what to do now. I'm lost. They've lost their sense of control uh, over or the ability to predict the outcome. It's the first thing that we lose typically in a storm. We don't know what's going to happen next. And all we know is that it looks really bad. So we tend to react. We do what we can to try and make it better. But sometimes it doesn't get better. Sometimes it gets worse and we experience a lot of loss, lost relationships, uh, lost jobs, lost health, lost homes, lost dreams, lost plans, right? Even though you do everything that you can to try and figure out the right thing to do, the best way to right the ship, it only seems to get worse. And so often this is when we begin to lose our hope, okay? But look, we should never lose hope. We should never lose hope in any situation in our lives because God never abandons us in the storm. He never leaves us or forsakes us. That promise is made to Israel in Deuteronomy. It's repeated in Joshua, in 1 Chronicles, in Hebrews 13, 5, and of course in Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says to his followers, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Right? He, he doesn't say I'm with you uh, until your situation is really desperate and then I will no longer be of assistance. No, he says, I'm with you always. John chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, referring to the Holy Spirit, of course, to be with you until times get tough and then you're on your own. No, that's not what he says. He says, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Because God never abandons us in the storm. And we see confirmation of this in Paul's own life. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. He's not saying, I told you so. Okay, and we'll get to that. He's saying, what I hear is not what you're hearing. And he's going to explain it in a minute. So this isn't an I told you so moment. Although it does kind of feel good to us reading it later. 22, yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. In other words, we're going to lose the ship, but none of you are going to die. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong. That's a key phrase. And whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for another key phrase. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. Okay, so first of all, it's worth noting here that in verse 23, instead of referencing the creator God or the God who rules over the sea or the God of heaven and earth, Paul says that he's heard from the God to whom he belongs. This is really typical of Paul uh, in a storm in his life to not only relate to people the personal nature of his relationship with God, which he does so masterfully, but the proper status of that relationship as well. 
Okay? Paul doesn't say, hey guys, God is my co-pilot. No, God's not your co-pilot. He doesn't say God is my pal. God's not your pal. He, He doesn't even say the God that I serve, which wouldn't be incorrect. Paul says, this is the God that owns me. I belong to him. In fact, I'm his possession. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. And interestingly enough, if you look at the, uh, where the word church comes from, it's the Greek word kyriki, which means those who are the possession of the kyrios, or those who belong to the Lord. That's where the word church comes from. We belong to him. We're his possession. John 17, 9, when Jesus was praying to the Father for his disciples, who were the beginning of the New Testament church, by the way, he prays, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Indisputably, we are the possession of God. Now, now if that's true... Why would God take something that is his own possession, that he created, that he owns, that he loves, that he gives joy, gets joy, uh, derives joy and blessing, and put him on a slow boat to Rome, and as soon as the storm comes, abandon what belongs to him? He wouldn't. He didn't. And as far as we're concerned today, he still doesn't. Because we're his possession We belong to him and he never abandons us. And and Paul, although no one else seemed to, Paul understood that. So about the time Luke says all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned, Paul steps up and says, hey, wait a minute, fellas. Just hang on a minute now. Aside from the fact that you refused to listen to me or the voice of God before, and now we're in a world of hurt, all is not lost because the God to whom I belong is with me. And I have it on his authority that not one single person on this boat will be lost. This is the picture of cool under pressure. Right? I mean, this is it. The ship is being tossed around like a toy on the ocean. They've lost control of where they're going. They've dumped their gear and tackle overboard. They haven't eaten for days. Their hope is gone. It's a certain death situation. And there's Paul in the midst of it, who stands up and says, it's all good, fellas. It's all good because God, God's got this, right? And the key to Paul's confidence is the phrase he utters in verse 25 when he says, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. That's it. That's what it's about. I believe this is the part that eludes us so often Because you can stand up in church and say that God never abandons us in the storm. And of course, intellectually, everybody who's been a believer for any amount of time will nod in agreement, right? Because we've all heard some version of that statement about 10,000 times in church in our lives, haven't we? That's like the company line, okay? We're supposed to say that. And everybody knows that we're supposed to believe that as Christians. The problem is, I'm not so sure that we actually believe it. Not sure we actually believe that because I've spent the better part of the past 20 years around professing Christians when their lives are in turmoil and I've seen so many of them come completely unglued when trouble shows up. And I've watched the sheer panic that ensues when their plans fall apart and their situation becomes uncertain. 
In fact, I'll let you in on a little secret. That's been me many times in my life. Okay, so, so why? Why do we totally lose it sometimes when our circumstances are in turmoil? The answer is because we don't have faith in God that it will be exactly as we have been told. And people say, well, he hasn't told me. Well, yes, he has. Oh, yes, he has. It's spelled out in his word. I will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. I'm with you always. Matthew 28, 20. I will be with you forever. John 14, 16. He works all things together for our good. Romans 8, 28. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Matthew 7, 11. God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 19. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Proverbs 133. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. John 14, 27. I just keep going. He has promised us that he will be with us no matter what we're dealing with. So why do we come unraveled when the heat gets turned up in our lives? Because we don't have faith in God that it will be exactly as we've been told. It's a faith issue. We just simply don't always believe that God will be who he says he is. And that he'll do what he said he would do when our lives are in chaos. So we cling with desperation to fear and faithlessness and respond uh, just like every other unbeliever who has no knowledge of God. All you have to do is spend a few minutes on social media and you'll find Christians who are completely undone and spewing all over a public forum about their situation. And it's either usually some vile, angry post about another person who's hurt them or a hopeless, depression-filled lament about how their life is falling apart. And, and I'm not making light of that. I'm actually, on the contrary, it is a very sad and very serious commentary on the lack of faith among the people of God because not only does it communicate our faithlessness to other believers, but when we do that, we're screaming to the rest of the world. I mean, let me just emphasize this point because I don't think I can overstate it. When we put hopeless, depression-filled post after post after post on social media, we are screaming to the unbelieving world that our faith is a joke. I'm convinced that there are a lot of professing Christians who have no idea the damage that they're doing to the church by what they're posting on social media. It's a travesty that something with so much incredible potential for good, I mean, think about this, never before in the history of the world has the average person had the ability to communicate in mass worldwide, at their fingertips, like we do today. 
And instead of using that phenomenal gift to spread the love of Christ, we instead defame his name and we make a mockery of the church because we're drunk on self-pity and self-worship. I really believe it is one of the most commonly wasted opportunities by believers today when we fail to testify to the faithfulness of God in our lives uh, with the opportunities that we have to communicate in mass. Shocking. Now, in fairness, I'll say I do sometimes see people make some really wonderful expressions of faith in God on social media during some incredibly difficult times. And I'll tell you, when I do, it always encourages me so much to see someone who's struggling really bad. And of course, they admit the reality, the harshness of that struggle. Yes, I'm not talking about being fake. Absolutely, you express the reality of that struggle. But at the same time, I see them expressing an unwavering faith in God in the midst of that storm. That's what I'm talking about. But unfortunately, the opposite of that is all too common. So, so just know this morning, God, God has spoken loud and clear. The promises to us have been made. We simply have to have the faith to believe that it will be as exactly as we've been told. And faith, by the way, is a gift from God. Paul says, eagerly desire the gifts. So if you're locked in a battle in your life, and you don't have the faith that you need to see your, yourself through that, that's okay, that's understandable. You ask God to give you the faith. And He will. He will. If you ask Him, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? You have not because you ask not. Sometimes we just need to ask for more faith. Let's keep reading. Verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Okay, this was a technique that sailors would use if their ship was large enough that it had multiple anchors. They would drop them down from the stern, the, the back of the boat, uh, to drag the anchors, which would help to keep the front of the boat oriented toward land and to potentially avoid capsizing, flipping over in the ocean. Okay, verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow... Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Right? So the crew decides to make their escape as they were nearing land. So they cook up a story that they're going to go out in the smaller landing boat to lay out the anchors in the front of the ship as well to secure it, while in reality they were attempting to abandon the ship and everyone else on the ship, which of course would have left no one there uh, on the boat with the necessary skills to handle it, which would have doomed all of those who were still on the ship. Okay, so once again, we see Paul take action and save everyone's life by informing the centurion and the soldiers of the crew's escape plan. And what really stands out here for me is the reoccurring theme that we're now seeing throughout this entire ordeal, that every time the skilled sailors who are supposed to know what they're doing, and the Roman soldiers who are supposed to be in authority are about to make some disastrous decision. 
that will affect everyone on the boat. Paul steps in, the prisoner, and saves everyone's life. If it wasn't for Paul, that ship would have been at the bottom of the ocean long before now. But because he completely trusted God to do exactly what he said he would do, even in the worst part of the worst storm of his life, this potentially disastrous set of circumstances turns out to be one of Paul's greatest moments. All right? Some of our brightest moments happen in our darkest hours. When God is with us and we place all of our faith and trust in the fact that he is with us and we focus on him instead of the storm that we're in, we can actually thrive in the midst of the storm and we can also help others thrive in that circumstance as well. Paul had already saved everyone's life and as we continue on in the story, he really steps up into a leadership role on that boat because no one else would. The crew is ready to abandon the Roman soldiers and the prisoners. The soldiers cut the landing boats away so the crew couldn't escape. Obviously, there's no strong leadership happening on the boat at this point. It's a bit of chaos. But Paul is there. And more importantly, he knows that God is there with him. Right? So he does what normally would be unthinkable for a prisoner on a ship. He takes control of the situation. And he gives hope to everyone there with him when there seemed to be no hope. Uh, Some of our brightest moments happen in our darkest hours. Let's keep reading. Verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. You see, he was leading by example, right? Verse 37, we were, all, uh, we were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So they've lost their cargo. They've lost their tackle. They've lost their landing boat. They've lost their profits. They've lost their hope. And they're about to lose the ship. All that is left is their lives. And Paul, whom no one on that boat, save perhaps Luke and his other friends, could have ever imagined that he would be the one to save everyone on board multiple times. Paul shines through the storm because he knew God was with him and he trusted God to see him through it. What a life lesson for us when we encounter difficulty and storms in our lives. When we've lost so much It seems like hope is gone. We must learn in those moments to take God at his word. Faith in his promises. He never abandons us. And when we really believe that, and when we act on that, and that's key, when we remain faithful to him and his word, and we act on that faith, even when we feel like jumping overboard and and getting into the escape boat and running from our circumstances, but instead we stay the course and faithfully trust him to guide us through that storm. He will shine through you. In fact, you'll learn things about yourself in those moments, in your dark hours. You'll learn things about God that you never knew because when when everything else gets stripped away and all that's left is God and us, As long as we don't give up, he has a completely empty vessel to work with. When all the the clutter is swept out of our lives, the, the deck of the ship is laid bare, 
And storms have a, have a way of doing that in our lives. And everything else that we've learned to rely on has been tossed overboard. And all that's left for us to do is look to God alone for our strength and our courage and our hope. It is in those moments, in our darkest hours, that He will shine through us like He never has before. The key, again, is trusting that He's there and that He's going to fulfill His promises in your life. It's having faith in God that it will be exactly as we've been told. That was the difference between Paul and everyone else on the boat. They were all focused on the storm. Paul was focused on God. Okay, so when the storms come, instead of allowing yourself to be overwhelmed by the storm, allow yourself to be overwhelmed by the grace and love that God has for you while you're in the storm. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 4.18 Instead of focusing on the turmoil around you, focus on His Word, particularly His promises for you while you're in the storm. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. 2 Corinthians 1.20 And instead of only mourning what you've lost, celebrate what He's doing in you while you're in the storm, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. Romans 3, 5, 3 through 5, okay? God never abandons us in the storm. And when we remain faithful to Him, even in the most difficult times, we can experience some of the brightest moments of our lives. He will shine through you in moments that will shape you and refine you and prepare you for the next step of your journey. It comes down to faith, believing that He will do exactly what we've been told He would do. Okay? Let's finish our story for today and we'll just briefly look at one more point. Verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach, sounds nice, on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. It's getting interesting. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders and then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. The boat is literally being broken to pieces while they're standing in it. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land and the rest on the planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So at the end of this incredible sequence of events, this shipwreck over a two-week period of time, the centurion finally learns to listen to Paul and to value the fact that Paul pretty much seems to be the only person on the boat that has any answers each time they face a certain death situation. Paul was like the MVP on the team, right? And the centurion wasn't about to let the soldiers kill uh, the most valuable asset, perhaps the only reason that they've been able to survive. And so I just want to mention one more point because it has to do with why I think we don't always engage in the storms in our life, why I believe we sometimes shut down and we fail to act. We get a bit of paralysis when these great storms of life come, okay? Because I think sometimes we allow ourselves to be intimidated. 
of course, by the circumstance. It's easy to do. But I think also by our culture, by what other people say about us, by uh, other people who may be in the storm with us. And we can listen to those other voices instead of the voice of God and become paralyzed by that when we need to be engaged in the struggle, which we see Paul doing. And so it's important that we understand that our lack of qualification in the world's eyes does not determine our qualification in God's eyes. Very different. Okay, what qualifies us to take action in the midst of a difficult situation has very little to do with what anyone thinks other than you and God. Now, he may speak to you through other people, your parent, a friend, a spouse, but if he's speaking to you through them, that's still his voice. Okay, if he's speaking to you through someone else, that is the voice of God in your life. But if you've got yourself convinced already that you're unqualified, that you're not up to the task of engaging in the struggle in your life and taking an active role in that situation, or if God's telling you not to, either way, you're not going to get very far. But listen, if God, who's always there with you, tells you to get up and get busy, and you have faith in God that it will be exactly as you've been told, then it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. Because your qualification to act, your confidence, your source of strength, your character, your fortitude, your understanding, your determination, your hope, your peace, it doesn't come from any title or position or education or economic status or any other person other than God Almighty. The all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-sovereign king over every situation, over every circumstance, and yes, over every storm in your life. What anyone else tells you is completely irrelevant if it goes against what God is telling you. And I find it so fascinating, this picture of these powerful men on this boat, businessmen, ship's owners, captain, crew, Roman soldiers, Roman officers on this mighty ship full of cargo and equipment and surrounded by worldly goods that represent a fortune. And a storm comes and every bit of that power and position and wealth and influence, everything that the world values is completely swept away and laid bare on that boat are 276 men. And at the very bottom of the barrel, in terms of people who are on that boat, who should have a voice in what happens next, according to the world standards, the, the very last person that the world would ever listen to in that situation would have been one of the prisoners. But that didn't matter. Because one of the prisoners was God's man. He was God's man on the job. And what the world thought very quickly became irrelevant. When all those men of high standing and wealth and power and influence stood on the same storm-battered deck as this lowly prisoner on a ship that was sinking, broken up in the surf, staring death in the face, and not one of them. Not the ship's owner, not the captain, not the crew, not the centurion, not the soldiers, not the businessmen, not one single man on that boat throughout the journey had one answer except the worthless prisoner who was on his way to Rome, probably to die, without ever being charged formally with a crime. 
Why? Because Paul was God's man. He didn't need an okay from the world to act. He just needed to know that God was with him. Okay? There are situations in life that we face where the only thing that we can do is pray. And that is no small thing. In fact, we know prayer is powerful, probably the most powerful thing that we can do in any circumstance. But so often there's much more that we can do when we're in a really tough place in addition to praying. And in fact, there's usually much more that God expects from us when faced with uncertain circumstances and difficulties than simply praying and just hoping it all works out. He's the one that gave us our hands, right? He's the one that gave us feet. He's the one that gave us eyes and ears and mouths. He's the one that gave us intellect, the ability to reason and learn and understand and to act. That all came from him. And I'm pretty sure he didn't give us all that so that every time our lives go haywire, we would lay on the deck of the boat and cry out, God, please help me without ever lifting a finger to actually do what needs to be done to get through that storm. So we can sit around and, and bemoan our situation and feel sorry for ourselves and ask people for prayer all day long. And, and again, I'm not in any way devaluing prayer and asking others for prayer. That's the most effective thing that we can do. But it's usually not the only thing that we can do. And it's usually not the only thing that we're commanded to do. Paul prayed all the time, but he was always active in every struggle, in every circumstance. Okay, you may be in the fight of your life today. And you'd better be praying, right? And by the way, I've never understood folks that don't ask others to pray for them because they value their privacy more than they value the power of the body of Christ praying with them. Honestly, I don't get that. If you're locked in a battle, if it looks like the ship is sinking, pick up the phone and call every true believer that you know and ask them to pray with you for what you need and then hit the floor on your knees and look, we'll bombard heaven together with the unified voice lifting you up to the one true God. And then after that, get up and get busy. Don't strap yourself down on the deck of the boat on the ship that's sinking and just wait for it to go down while you do nothing. Engage in the storm. God is with you. He's always with you. And it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. If you're with God and he's with you, you just get busy doing everything that you can possibly do to see yourself and the others through that battle, through that storm. God will direct you. He will. He'll direct you through prayer. He'll direct you through his word. And by the way, uh, timing is everything. If those men with Paul had abandoned the ship too soon, they would have all died, according to Paul in verse 31. And if they'd waited any longer than they did, they would have gone down with the ship. Okay, God will tell you what to do, and he'll tell you when to do it. But then you have to act on that. And when you do that, not only will you come out of that storm a stronger person, but as well, while everyone else around you is running for cover trying to figure out what to do with no answers, you will shine brighter than you ever have before. And God will use you not only to save yourself out of that situation, but often everyone else with you. Okay, we can shut down when trouble comes. Or we can have faith in God that it will be exactly as we've been told. And then we'll shine. 
we will shine even in the worst shipwrecks of your life. Let's pray.